Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. Man, isn't it good to be in the Lord's house this evening? I'm thrilled that you're here. Trust that God will speak to your heart tonight. Luke chapter number 9. And I'd like to begin reading in the early portion of the chapter, beginning verse number 1. And I'd like to read down verse number 6. This is a fascinating chapter that deals with service and discipleship and our relationship with the Lord. Uh, teaches us some things about growing in our walk with the Lord. We ought to be growing in our walk with the Lord. We ought to be serving the Lord. And your life should be an offering unto the Lord. Uh, the Bible tells us to uh, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Uh, we oftentimes view our time in our life as a resource that has to be carefully guarded, but the Lord presents it as a opportunity to yield our life unto Him as a gift. One of the greatest things you'll do is learn to be liberal with the Lord. Amen? I'm going to say that again. To be liberal with the Lord. In other words, to just go ahead and give God everything. Amen? Go ahead and give God everything. And here in Luke chapter number 9, there's much that is spoken about concerning the matter of discipleship and of serving the Lord. But I want to notice something interesting that caught my attention that God used in my heart as I studied this passage. Luke chapter number 9. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Luke chapter 9, verse number 1. Let's read down to verse number 6. The Bible says, Then he called his disciples together, gave them power and authority over all devils, and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. Whatsoever ye enter into, house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. They departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's stop and pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God I pray that you'd take the authoritative Word of God, the powerful Word of God, and that you would work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, that you would do a work in us that would would resound throughout eternity. And Lord, that you'd be pleased with our obedience unto you this evening. I don't know the heart of any person here. Lord, there's not a one of us that escapes your eye and your wisdom. You see all of us. You know all of us. So I just pray that you do the work that only you can do. In our hearts and minds tonight of arresting our attention, our will, uh, directing our uh, mind towards Christ, making us more into His image. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When we read this passage of Scripture, we oftentimes are immediately struck by the remarkable and sensational description of the work of the Lord in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then He called His disciples together, gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. I think oftentimes people, when they read this passage of Scripture, they'll get very, very enamored with that passage, that verse in particular, and uh, what God was doing in this world at that time. And you know, in that passage, we do learn some things about the work of the Lord. We learn, for one, that the Lord is powerful. We learn that this thing of Christianity and Bible Christianity is not just an abstract academic study but rather that is powerful in the lives of those that will hear and heed the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and receive Him as their Savior. In other words, God can change your life. God is in the life-changing business. That's, that's what He does. He has a desire to transform and to change your life. But I would say we learn that God is powerful in this passage of Scripture. But we also learn that there is a particular historical context to this passage. Now you say, well, preacher, what do you mean? Well, the Bible says in verse 2, He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Very often, uh, there are denominations and movements that would latch onto these verses and say, well, see here, preacher, this is, uh, the Bible teaches us here that this is something that we should be doing in this dispensation, in this day that we are living in. Things like uh, casting out devils and healing diseases and performing all manner of express and manifest miracles in this world. You say, preacher, do people believe that? Well, turn on TV and you'll find all kinds of people that believe that. Uh, but I would remind you of two important truths concerning that. One, notice what the Bible says, that they are preaching the kingdom of God. Now, while I would not say that the phrase the kingdom of God is exclusive regarding the gospel of the grace of God, I would also recognize that the message that they were preaching regarded the very same message that John preached and that Jesus preached, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is dealing with a particular ministry to the nation of Israel at this time in human history. And the powers and the signs and the miracles that God was doing were very particular that season and that time period. You'll find you study your Bible that you get into the book of Acts. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, there's very little what we would call miraculous activity uh, of the uh, tangential kind that's taking place in the world. Now, I still believe we have a miracle-working God. I've seen God do things that no science textbook could explain. But the notion of men wielding miraculous power in a fashion is not something that we find consistent with New Testament Christianity. Uh, you don't see, uh, when we look at the Pauline epistles and at the things that God commanded, many of the activities that are described here, they're not enumerated, they're not outlined, they're not detailed or described how a person should perform those things and do those things. I would also just make a logical observation uh, that if that ability were still present with man to do so, and I'm not sure they could ever do so indiscriminately, but if that power were even present today, as many on television would like you to believe, you'd have to explain to me why a merciful God would allow hospitals to exist and sickness to exist and illness to exist. I think if I had the ability to take my suit coat and slap someone in the head and heal them, I'd spend all my days down at Children's Hospital just trying to change lives. But then I would say this, that we learn through this passage that God is a powerful God, and we understand there's a historical context to this, but we learn something about the Lord, that God is a particular God, and that He expects certain things out of His people, and that He has certain standards and criteria as to who serves Him, not who can serve Him, but who will serve Him. Let me say, there's a difference between who can serve God and who will serve God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I would say this. Anybody can serve God. There's none of us that have because of uh, native abilities that are born within us or, or brilliance or intelligence. That's not what God is interested in. It's not what God is looking for. But not everybody will serve Him because not everybody is willing to serve Him. And so anybody can serve Him, but I recognize that not everybody will serve Him. But for those that are willing to be used of God, we learn this, that God has certain standards and principles and responsibilities that He places on the shoulders of those that would serve Him. It is no small or low or mean thing to serve the living God. We ought to take that seriously. If you or I are privileged to do anything for the Lord, it might be as small as 
pick up a piece of paper off the ground. It might be as, as big or as weighty or as heavy as winning someone to Christ. Whatever it is and wherever it lands in between the scope of those things, we ought to consider it a high and holy honor to do anything for the Lord. And it ought not be something that we view and, and treat begrudgingly or treat it as though it is an, uh, an unimportant or an incidental thing. And when we read this passage of Scripture, we learn that the Lord laid certain restrictions and certain responsibilities and certain commandments upon the shoulders of those that He sent out in His name to preach the truth of God. We read about it in verse number 3. He said unto them, Take nothing for your journey. Neither stage nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. Then he gives them a second principle. He says, whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. Then he gives them a third principle. He says, whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. Now, what does this teach us and what does this suggest to us tonight? Is that saying that, those of us that want to live for the Lord and serve God with our life, that God begrudges us having money in our wallet, begrudges us having uh, bread upon our person, begrudges us having uh, various changes of clothing. I don't think so. I don't think that God is impressed by poverty any more than He's impressed by prosperity. I'm going to say it again. I don't think God is impressed by poverty any more than He is in, impressed by prosperity. And then when we read this passage of Scripture, verse number 4, is this suggesting that if we go and serve the Lord, that if we dwell in a place or live in a place, that we have to live in that place forever and for the rest of our lives. I don't think that is the commandment. And is it suggesting that if we meet with opposition, we have to literally, as some uh, believe, uh, exercise this ceremony of shaking dust off of our feet. In other words, is God laying strict commandments upon the shoulders of His servants, or is He rather trying to teach them some important principles they'll need if they're going to serve? Well, it's interesting. You know, there's another time when the Bible tells us that the Lord sent out disciples. And the Bible says in verse number 35 of Luke 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 35, that He said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything. So he's asking about what he did in chapter 9. Saying, you remember when I, in the early days of my ministry, I sent you out and I told you not to take an extra change of clothes. I told you not to take any money. I told you not to take anything. They said, yeah, Lord, we, we remember when we did that. He said, when you did that, was there anything that you lacked? They said, no, Lord. You met every need. You provided for everything. Then said he unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it. Likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. In other words, the Lord says that back in chapter 9, when I sent you out under those terms, was not necessarily because these terms were uh, uh, critical to you serving. But he says, rather it was because I was trying to teach you some things about what serving me would look like and about how you would serve. We could, I think, readily say that in chapter number 9, they're in the classroom of God's instruction. God's teaching them how to live for Him, how to serve Him, what it means, what it looks like. I think oftentimes there's many people that quitting Christianity, and by that I mean they make a commitment to serve the Lord, and 
Then they find out what serving the Lord looks like. And because they've been maleducated about what Christianity really looks like, they're shocked to discover uh, what it means to be a Bible Christian. Our Lord, He did not do this exercise of, of trying everything He could to soften what living for Him and following Him looked like, to try to make it shiny and appealing. Very often in our Lord's ministry, when men would come to Him, they'd say, I want to follow you. He'd say, do you really know what following me looks like? You know, you know where the places I go? <laughs> you know the things that I do? Do you know what it's going to mean if you're going to really sell out and live for me? And the Lord was not afraid of thinning his crowd. In fact, there's times he seems he did it intentionally. Because he wanted to call down to those that were serious about serving God. And here in this passage, Luke chapter 9, he is instilling in them certain ideals that it's going to take if you're going to successfully live for God. Not everybody successfully lives for God. There's all sorts of failures in the matter and manner and, and, and issue of devotion to the Lord. People that used to live for God that don't live for Him now. People that used to walk with God that don't walk with God now. Not everybody succeeds and there's some things we need to learn if we're going to succeed in serving the Lord. I want you to notice tonight three lessons for serving God in our passage. Look with me at verse number three. The Bible says, He said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. Now, this more than even the other two principles, we could say definitively and authoritatively was an important lesson he was trying to teach. Because he directly countermands this commandment in Luke chapter number 22 and says, if you got a purse, take it. If you got script, which would have been sort of what we would think of as banknotes or something that would vouch for a person's monetary value, he says, then take it. He even goes so far as say, if a man doesn't have a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. God rather have you armed and naked than helpless. Somebody say amen. Next time, men, that you're wanting to go out and buy a gun, she says something about it, you just quote Scripture to her, amen? <laughs> Nothing helps a marriage like healthy Scripture quoting at each other, amen? <laughs> Always helps. <laughs> What's the Lord trying to teach them? I would say, number one tonight, if you're going to serve God, you're going to have to learn a lesson about reliance. You're going to have to learn that you're going to need Him and it's good to need Him. And we don't like that. Our pride doesn't like that. And our flesh doesn't like that. Because we don't need nobody. But you'll find in the Word of God, as the psalmist said, He weakened my strength. God will go out of His way to make sure you need Him. So that you don't miss out on the blessing of both needing Him and getting Him in your life. You're going to need Him for two things. I would say, well, you're going to need Him a lot of things. But in our text here, he teaches them about reliance and trusting God. Number one, he teaches them about trusting God for protection. He says, when you go out, do not go out armed. Do not go out. He uses the term staves in our text here in Luke chapter 9, verse 3. And uh, a stave, of course, would have functioned as a walking stick, but it would have also functioned as a means of, of protection. And he doubles down on this in chapter 22 when he talks about the importance of a sword in their journey. And what he's saying is this, when you go out and go to serve me, you're going to have to learn how to trust me to watch over you. 
Now, somebody will say, well, preacher, this is a good message for the missionary. This is a good message for the person going out in the rough parts of town door knocking. But I'm telling you this, and it is a good message for them. But I'm telling you even beyond what we would consider the express activity of ministry, that if you're going to make your mind up that you're going to live for God, that you're going to raise your kids for God, that you're going to take a stand for God, uh, you're going to have to trust God to protect that precious little home that you have that God has blessed you with. You're going to have to trust Him to watch over you and to meet your needs. Let me say we can trust God to protect us. I'd rather have destruction at His hand than safety without Him. Job himself learned to say, in the midst of deep and abiding sorrow and calamity, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He is a trustworthy God, and you can trust him for your protection. Not only do we have to learn to trust God for protection, notice what he says in the text here. Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, and he says, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money. Neither have two coats apiece. Now, the three items he lists, we know what bread is and we know what money is. And scrip is sort of what we would think of as a, as a bank note or we might say a currency of the kingdom at that time. When he talks about money, he's talking about what we would think of as, as uh, tangible uh, things of value, things uh, like gold or things like silver. But then when he talks about scrip, he's talking about something that would verify a person's credit worthiness or a person's uh, ability to be able to provide for themselves financially. In other words, he's saying, don't take... <laughs> Uh, Don't take what you need to eat. Don't take what you need to buy what you can eat. And don't take what you need to prove to those that can give you what you need to buy what you need, what you need to prove to them. That makes sense? He's telling them this. Don't go out there with any plan B's. Just trust me. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, are you saying that I ought to live my life that way? Well... Depends. Depends on if you're living according to Luke chapter 9 or Luke chapter 22. Because in Luke chapter 22, he says, oh yes, take your purse, take your script. See, God is not, as we said at the opening of our message tonight, God's not impressed with poverty. Nor is God impressed with recklessness. You understand, He sent His Son to Calvary to die for you. There's nothing you could do to impress Him how hardcore you are about this thing. It's not a matter of trying to get you to live recklessly in life, but rather it's trying to convince you and confirm in your mind that even with whatever measures you have in your life that God may use to protect you and provide for you, that at the end of the day it's none of those things that really do it, but rather it's the faithful hand of God. Listen, God's not against you having a job. In fact, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, uh, that he ought not eat. The Bible says man won't provide for his Family's worse than an infidel and has denied the faith. God expects you to work. Work is a good thing. Work is a wholesome thing. Work is a healthy thing. But don't think for one moment that it's your boss that keeps you fed. I think it's good that you save money. Somebody called Dave Ramsey. Get him here. I think it's good. You ought to save money. Uh, of course, you know, right now you're losing money if you're saving money is all I'm saying. They can't, listen, they can't take 40% of the value of your firearms. Somebody say amen to that, but your dollar ain't worth much anymore. I'm not against you doing those things. I I think that's fine. You you can go, you can get in line with all the people and buy the gold and the silver and everything. It's going to be funny if it ever really does fall apart and people sitting around starving to death with gold piled around them because you can't eat it. Amen. 
You all don't even know what to think tonight, do you? You thought I, I was going to come to church and we was going to have the Lord's Supper. I was, my heart was going to be stirred and everything. And now he's talking about Dave Ramsey. Well, that's Wall Ridge on Sunday nights. Amen. I don't think God's against you doing those things. And, and listen, I recommend to you have, have a plan and then have a plan for your plan and then have a plan for your plan for your plan and then trust God above all your plans. Never lose sight of who it is that meets your needs. You see, as you serve the Lord, you have to be reminded that at the end of the day, it's going to take God meeting your needs and taking care of you if your life is going to be of any effect or is going to be of any purpose. You could devote your life to the stability and insulating of whatever your uh, fiscal situation is. You could spend a lot of time building barns and filling them up and then tearing them down and building bigger ones. But I think the better thing is to recognize and understand that uh, a loving, heavenly Father that cares for us is the one that meets our needs, that watches over us, and that if our life, our life would be far better spent instead of building bigger barns with trying to live to please Him with how we live our lives. He teaches them, number one, a lesson about reliance. Then look at verse number four. The Bible says this, Whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. What does he mean when he says this? Well, it would have been common at that time. There were some towns and some cities that had inns and places of lodging within them. And it's possible that the disciples on their evangelistic journey would have stayed in some of those. It's also possible they would have stayed in the homes of friends, in the homes of people that they knew. And so what he's saying is, as a traveler, when you enter into one of these houses, there abide and thence depart. In other words, don't go jumping around between a bunch of different hotels. You just stay put right where you're at. It's one of the fondest memories that I have of growing up and taking vacations. Back then, I don't know if it was just my parents, if it was everybody, but nobody seemed to plan for vacation. we just roll up in Myrtle Beach looking for a hotel, hoping there's one there. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you all did that. I, but I, I remember times we'd be sitting there, we'd pull up the hotel, and it Man, you talk about rough, like we'd been on the road, you know, uh, six and a half, seven, eight hours. Dad's in a bad mood already. I remember one time years ago, we got stuck in a Shriners parade. <laughs> and it's just the grace of God, the grace of God, that the front end of that Cadillac was not just peppered with little red fezzes and them hauling my dad off to jail in handcuffs. Son, he's tore up. And... uh but we, we'd go on vacation, and, and oftentimes we'd... Our, I don't know why we did this. I don't know if it's because we were poor or what it was. We weren't really poor, but Mom and Dad made us think we were. I don't know what they did with our money. And, and But we'd pull up to a hotel, and, and Mom would get out to go in and negotiate a rate and go in and talk to him. Try to, and then she'd come, she'd come out, and I'd see Dad look at her, and she'd go, and get back in the car, and down the road we'd go, you know, and... And I remember vacations where we must have stayed in three or four hotels. I don't know if we couldn't. And, and I remember I asked Mom about this one time, not, oh, not too long ago. I said, why did we do that? And she said, well, we couldn't afford to stay in the nice hotels the whole time. And I said, well, why didn't we just stay in the bad ones the whole time then? <laughs> Been better than living like gypsies, you know. And uh, what is the Lord condemning in this passage? <laughs> Them too, Kenny says. Is he saying when you go to a place, check into the hotel, don't check out when you stay anywhere? Is that what he's saying? No, here's what I thought. I know, Laren, I'm with you, hon. Here's what I think is being dealt with in this passage. He's saying this. 
when you go to serve me, when you go to live for me, when you go out and you center yourself in a place, he's saying, don't jump around and lay yourself open to accusations and to risks that you could incur by doing that. In other words, he's saying, pick a place and stay there because the danger they would encounter if they went from this house to this house to this house to this house and the possibility of the rumors that could be spread around, of the lies that could be told about them, of the scandals that could pop up around them if they were not careful in how they comported themselves. Let me say it this way. Here we find a lesson about reputation. He says, don't play fast and loose with your reputation. He said, don't jump from this house to this house to this house to this house because it is dangerous to do that. People could say all manner of things. He says, find a place, someone of a good testimony and someone of a reliable character and stay there and dwell there in that place lest your testimony suffer for it. You know, one of the things that is important as we go to serve the Lord in our daily lives is that we guard our testimony. Uh, you can't keep you can't make everyone like you, but you can make them lie about you if they're going to say something ungodly about you. You can't make them like you, but you can make them lie about you if they're going to say something ungodly. Hey, you know what? That's what the Bible says about Daniel in the Old Testament. That they literally had to pass laws to find things that he had done wrong. They had to pass laws to claim he broke them. That's how strong his testimony was. And like our Lord, they had to hire men to lie about him to get anybody to accuse him of anything. That's how important a testimony is. In fact, I would say this, number one, a godly reputation is fundamental to serving the Lord. Now, the modern strategy would have probably been concerning this, hit as many houses as you can. Stay a little while here, then stay a little while there, then stay a little while here. But that's not the Lord's advice. He says you pick a place and stay in that place, lest you damage or ruin your reputation. It tells me this, it must be pretty important that I have a good testimony. Now, again, you can't always affect what people think of you. But you should never underestimate how important it is, the testimony you have before a lost and dying world. They're watching you, and Satan is watching for an opportunity to destroy you. Listen, a a godly reputation is fundamental, but then we learn this. Evidently, a godly reputation is fragile. I always tell our camp workers when we have camp, and I remember hearing a camp director say this years ago, and it just sort of stuck with me. And for years now, I have told our camp directors about how they need to conduct themselves around the young people at camp. Things you just need to be careful about. You know, you don't need to be alone in a cabin with a kid. There needs to always be other adults around, other people around. You need to be careful. Uh, you know, they're in the cabins. but People take pictures and this and that. And, you know, you need to make sure nobody's changing or nobody's any of this or any of that. Just things ought to be common sense, but oftentimes aren't so common anymore. And, and just things about having discernment and being cautious in the way that you conduct yourself. And I'll always tell our camp workers, I say, listen, they don't have to tell the truth to ruin your life. They can lie about you and ruin your life. You know, in your life and in mine, it's all the more important that we be circumspect in the way that we conduct ourselves because the devil don't have to... He will lie about you. He will lie about you. And here's what we can guarantee. We can't guarantee people won't lie about us but we can make certain that we do everything we can to ensure that their lives will have to be extravagant and outlandish. That's why we don't need to walk close to a line when it comes to our personal commitment and consecration. 
We don't need to find ourselves in compromising positions and situations. And that's what, that's what the Lord is warning His disciples of. He says, every time you go into a house, you, you take a risk. Every time you go into a house, you lay yourself at the mercy of the people that own that house. And the more you do that, the more that you expose yourself, the more you risk your ministry and your testimony and the testimony of my name. Let me remind you that your testimony is inextricably linked to Christ's testimony. Whether you want it to be so, whether you think it should be or not, the people around you in your life, they're going to look at you and associate Christ with you and you with Christ. If you call yourself a Christian, they're going to look at you and think that's what Christianity looks like. So he gives them this important lesson about reputation. But then look at verse 5 and we'll be done tonight. The Bible says this, Whosoever will not receive you, When you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. He says, you're going to go to some cities and some of them will receive you. And there will be people that will take you into their home and provide for you. And I will make sure that your needs are met. He said, but there's going to be some cities you're going to go to. And you won't find a single person there that will put a shelter over your head that will meet your needs and that will take care of you. In other words, far from giving them the delusion that they're going to be loved everywhere they go and that something's broken about their Christianity if they're not, he readies them for the eventuality that they're going to meet somebody that's not going to like them. They're going to meet somebody that's not for them. They're going to meet somebody that'd love to stop them. And he says when that happens, when, when you run into this, well, go ahead and just quit and go on home. Is that what he says? No. Well, go ahead and get mad at me that I've sent you out into this situation. No. Does he say, go ahead and compromise. Become what they're looking for. That way they'll love you. No. He says, when you go out of that city, and I, I ain't even preaching on but I just like that phrase, when you go out of that city. In other words, he says, don't stick around there. Go ahead and leave. Go ahead and leave. Go ahead and leave is what he says. When you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. Now, what is this a lesson concerning? Well, I think it's a lesson about resilience. About the fact that they're going to sooner or later come into a situation where somebody's not going to like the fact that they're there in the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, go ahead and ready yourself to that reality. He points to the practical reality of rejection. If you're going to serve God, you're going to have to grow comfortable with the fact that there will be people that won't like that. Now, it doesn't mean that you ought to wake up in the morning just to make them mad. But it does mean that you ought to go ahead and just settle it in your heart and mind that who you are is, is who Christ made you to be and that you ain't going to change uh, to conform to the world's standards and compromise the truth of God's Word just to appease or to please them. He tells them, go ahead and be ready for the fact that it's not always easy to serve me and not everybody's going to like you serving me. And settle it in your heart that sometimes serving Christ separates you from people. If somebody told you that you could be everybody's best friend and serve the Lord, I'm sorry, they lied to you. And again, that doesn't mean you should uh, revel in that. It doesn't mean that you should relish that reality. And there are certain religions that relish that. I mean, hey, listen, it's it's not an accident that the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all wear the little uniforms and act as weird as possible to try to uh, stack up persecution against themselves. That's part of their theology. They're trying to make themselves despisable and odd in the world's eyes so that then when the world says, you're weird, <laughs> they can like uh, act like they're persecuted. I'm not saying that we ought to live our lives to be a spectacle out of weirdness. 
But I am saying you ought to go ahead and make up your mind to the fact that there are going to be people that just because you love Christ, they're not going to love you. And just because you stand for Christ, they're not going to tolerate you. I see the practical reality of rejection. Then I see the proper response to rejection. Now, modern missionary philosophy would suggest that what they needed to do is blitz that city with more flyers and with more leaflets. But that's not what the Lord tells them to do. He says, if they don't want you, don't stay. When you go out of that city, he says, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. Now, that's an interesting testimony, isn't it? Why would you shake off the dust from your feet? Actually, nowadays, that terminology, that phraseology has even become sort of a coined term. And and you're probably familiar with that language, but it comes from your King James Bible. What does it mean? Well, here is what is being implied within it. If you don't want us, we don't want to even carry the dust from your house. You know, let's say it this way. We won't take anything from this place that you won't freely give us. Even the dust itself will leave behind. And it will be a testimony to you that you have rejected us, rejected what we had to offer, and that we are free and clear and guiltless from your blood, that we have tried and you have rejected us and spurned us. Now, what does that mean to you and I? What does that mean about how we live for the Lord? Well, let me just put in a very, very simple phrase. Say, preacher, sometimes I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm trying to raise my family right. And, and some of my family, they don't understand. They don't like it. Some of my friends, they don't understand. They don't like it. My coworkers or my boss or, or my, my, the, my place of business, even as an institution, they don't understand. And they fight against me. And, and preacher, what do I do? How, how can I contend with that? What do I need to do to serve the Lord? Well, here's what you do. Go ahead and just shake off the dust and keep on going for God. Don't mean you have to walk around with a chip on your shoulder. It doesn't mean you have to thumb your nose at those people. But sure enough, don't let them stop you. You go ahead and just pick up and go on and serve God anyway. And God will give you a place of an open door to be used of Him in mighty fashion. In other words, we could describe it not as what is the proactive advice and counsel of what you are to do, but rather by enumerating what you are absolutely not to do. You're not to quit, and you're not to compromise, and you're not to change. So what does that mean? That means you're to just keep on going serving the Lord. Serving God requires a certain measure of resilience. Quitters don't do well living for God. If you're raised to be a quitter, and there are people that raise their children to be quitters, uh, they allow for all manner of quitting and encourage all manner of quitting and excuse all manner of quitting. But I'm just telling you, Christianity and this thing of serving God, it don't work real well for others because you are going to encounter some opposition. You are going to encounter some difficulty. And God wanted His followers to understand. Jesus wanted His disciples to understand. There's nothing broken about it when you find yourself facing opposition. That's the normal course of things. What would be broken is if you gave up and quit and stopped serving God. He says, instead, just go ahead and go on serve Him. Preacher, who'll provide for me? God will meet your needs. Preacher, who'll protect me? God will protect you. Listen, if, if, if we can't even trust Him for the most basic of things, then how can we trust Him for the big things? If, if we are so obsessed with the, with, with, with resting the reins of our agency in our life away from God, 
that we have to be able to account for and enumerate every single little escape hatch and every single little plan B. And, and we are so obsessed with the control over our life that we can't even trust Him with the most basic things. What does that say about our faith in Him? I'm not saying don't have plans. I'm not saying don't have safety nets. I'm saying at the end of the day, don't forget who it is that makes all those things viable in the first place. Learn how to trust Him, how to rely Upon him. Guard your testimony. Your testimony's key in being used of God. And don't put yourself in compromising positions. You say, well, preacher, you know, I guess there's some question about, well, if there's question about it, go ahead and walk away from it. If there's question about it, go ahead and walk away from it. That's what Joseph did. Joseph lost his coat, but he kept his character. He lost his coat, but he kept his character. The moment that that situation turned weird, he, he fled. He got out of there. Listen, in your life, don't put yourself in compromising situations. And learn to just keep going, even when you're met with opposition. Don't give up on God. Just keep going. Man, we need to do these things in our life. Let's bow together this evening. A musician's going to come and play. And if God spoke to your heart about anything, I want you to meet the Lord in the altar this evening. Just let Him have His will. Let Him have His way tonight. And if there's some manner or some matter that God's spoken to you about, would you be willing to meet Him in the altar? Bow the knee before Him, just be honest and get honest with Him and let Him have His will and His way. Father, I love it, or to allow You to apply it. May we be obedient unto it. We ask it in Christ's name.